You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. Today, we're bringing you a discussion with Tom Vanderark and Dr. Caitlin McMunn Dooley, Deputy Superintendent for Teaching and Learning at the Georgia Department of Education. Dr. Dooley's been involved in education over 20 years and has worked in schools and has led a number of initiatives. When her husband's career took them to Texas, Dr. Dooley's only requirement was that she went back to school to obtain her PhD and learn more about how to be a better teacher and thinker about everything she was learning as technology expanded in education. Their next adventure took them to Georgia, where Dr. Dooley got a job as a professor at Georgia State, educating new teachers at their schools. Fast forward 12 years later, Dr. Dooley is now leading a statewide effort to supercharge virtual learning with an open technology architecture that will improve learner experience, credit transfer, and more. In addition, Dr. Dooley and her team are working hard to integrate computer science into every Georgia school using a framework she co-authored. Let's listen in to hear more about the work Dr. Dooley is doing. And Caitlin, I, I would not have, uh, until a month ago when we when we talked at uh, the iNACL Symposium, I would not have thought of Georgia as, uh, as a leading innovator, but it, it turns out there were a number of really interesting projects underway, and I think your presence has really turbocharged them and others. So I'd, I'd love to run down the list of things that you're, uh, that you're working on. Sure. Maybe we can start with the Georgia Virtual Learning. This is a sort of a medium-sized statewide online school. I think there's about 120 courses, maybe 30,000 enrollments. Is that about right? So Georgia Virtual uh, started a little less than 10 years ago. When it started, it started growing slowly, and then we really saw the hockey stick increase in terms of enrollments. It's technically not a school. It's a it's a series of courses that are offered, and it was intended to be courses that a school district may not have the opportunity right. to always hard to Maybe hard to staff courses. We might call that course choice. Yeah. So ad, advanced courses, language courses. Exactly. So, right, and you also offered a full array of uh, credit recovery courses. We do. And what we're also finding is that with the teacher shortage that our state is experiencing, just like many other states, it's also a very um, helpful supplement when schools are having difficulty recruiting teachers. They, they have a ready-made curriculum. Um, and so either they can in, increase student enrollments in Georgia Virtual, or they can place a new teacher into a classroom and utilize all of the Georgia Virtual curricular materials. They're all open educational resources, and we provide them for everyone for free. So it's really a way to ensure that there's high quality curricular content in every course. And what we were finding, so one of the things that I brought with me into the, into the Department of Education is I'm a researcher by trade now. So I use a lot of data in order to improve what we do. Um, what we're finding is that our outcomes from Georgia Virtual, when, when students use our curriculum, they actually, some on many courses, I would say the vast majority of them, they can outperform their face-to-face uh, course peers. And this is irregardless of demographics because we get about 30,000 students every year going through our courses. And those students on average take about two courses in their high school career. Right. So we know that our demographics mimic the population. 
And so irregardless of subgroup and irregardless of um, socio socioeconomic background, our students are really doing well with the course materials that we have. Yeah, and we, we've seen that in other places. Florida Virtual has had the similar experience that if you have a well-constructed course with clear outcomes that's well taught that you really can perform quite well in this uh, sort of course choice option. You can. And so um, I think that is because how we measure our course outcomes. So I say that I say we outperform face to face with a caveat that that's when we measure it using our end of course exams. And Georgia just went to including constructed response. But for the most part, our end of course exams are multiple choice. When we start looking at personalization and we start really thinking about what curriculum should be for the future, I see more need for project-based. And we are still on the learning curve for how to increase the um, the acceptance for project-based across the state, as well as the instantiations of project-based in the virtual environment. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that. We are big fans of extended challenges, uh, project-based learning and uh, design thinking. It can be particularly difficult to do in an online environment. There are only a few really great examples, and we're we're glad that you're working on that. Yeah, that's, that's our... The other thing, too, as we look at the data for Georgia Virtual, we're to the point now we were where we saturated um, across all, almost all of our local education agencies or our districts. So all of them are aware they're using it for what they want to use it for. Um, what we are now thinking about is, okay, so once we hit that plateau in terms of saturation and we're really not seeing the um, exponential increase in enrollments like we had before, what is it that we need to do to innovate in order to maintain um, at least stride with the market? You know, we're a government agency. We don't, we don't think that we're going to outpace the market, but we definitely want to maintain stride. So that's what brought us to a total learning architecture, which is basically, um, I keep explaining it as the resources themselves, the open educational resources need to talk to each other. <laughs> And they need to um, they need to align to what kids or students are learning and doing, so that it's not up to a teacher to know what every resource is and and have to know how to um, account for every learner's difference. The resources themselves, if we build in the back end solutions, we can actually have resources that adapt to learners, so that teachers can really do more facilitation and feedback. When we work in Georgia Virtual, that's what we really stress to the teachers is instead of being the curriculum makers, they're they're supposed to spend their time doing the craft of teaching and giving really good feedback. Uh, total Learning Architecture is uh, an advance from the Department of Defense. Where did you learn about that? Well, the Total Learning Architecture term um, is in the learning sciences research. It's been in that research for a while. Um, we did partner with the Advanced Distributed Learning Lab out of the Department of Defense. That is somewhat serendipitous. We were interested in it because our associate superintendent, Keith Osborne, um, had had said, you know, what do we need to do to increase enrollments and really innovate in the Georgia Virtual Program? And, and this is what we came up with was trying to ins- ensure that the back-end standard specifications for open um, educational resources align well, and then our virtual courses can ingest those and become more interoperable with the learning management systems that the districts use. 
So that's how we came to an understanding of this. And then at some point, Keith mentioned this to someone and, and we ended up connecting with ADL. So ADL, I had heard of ADL before. Um, they do publish in peer-reviewed journals. So I was familiar with them, but um, it was really excited when I was excited when we went to meet with them because they really are thinking about some of the same issues that we're thinking about in K-12. Like how do we address, you know, varied uh, standards and competencies in order to reach every learner, especially when if a learner goes in one direction and we would consider them like pathways and then they want to change, um, that time scale of courses and, and taking, you know, each class has really been disrupted by the way that our schools move now. And so we're trying to figure out ways to utilize virtual resources in a more, much more flexible and learner centric way so that learners are at the center of what we do. And I think the military is dealing with the same kinds of questions when they're trying to ensure that, you know, someone who's entering into the infantry who wants to switch into communications has algebra one knowledge. Um, They're looking and they have said to us, we don't we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to have a bunch of pedagogues understand algebra one. We can use K-12 because K-12 has done a good job of that. And then we can partner up in order to understand how to create this architecture so that all of the resources that are available are much more ingestible. So you're also using the, the case from IMS, the Competency and Academic Standards Exchange. That, is that a strategy for improving uh, competency and transcript management? It is. Um, so that's one of the elements of the total learning architecture is to ensure that all standards and competencies are computer re- computer readable. So the case format helps us to ensure that that specification is met. We've been right. With- and just for our our listeners, um, we'll probably know that transcripts in the old days were just PDFs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, how how does case make that better? So case, as well as other parts of the architecture. So um, basically what that means is instead of having a PDF that lists out all your courses, you would have um, some a, an online transcript that follows you. When I explain this to people, I say it's kind of like how your Gmail address follows you. No matter what computer you're on, you can still access your Gmail in the same way, no matter what computer you're on, you can still access your transcript. And that transcript the courses that you've taken are verified through the verification process that is standardized through CASE. So um, just like in a PDF transcript that you have to get from your school and the school verifies it, in this case, you can get um, you can get transcripts uh, where you've taken courses in different, um, different platforms and, and different organizations offering them, and those can follow you. It's kind of like the difference between a paper resume and LinkedIn with the verifications where of what you know and endorsements of what you know by your peers. That LinkedIn follows you as you go and can grow as you grow. Um, and it's it's somewhat seamless with your peer group. All right. Since we've gone down this the uh, technical standards rat hole, what is a learning record store, LRS, and how will teachers and students use that? <laughs> So a learning record store is is, um, the back end of where your records would be kept. Um, That ends up being 
something that the student has control over. And this is a little different than a school having control of your transcript. Right. Um, that is in control. You know, the, your university or your school controls that. A learning record store allows you, the learner, to maintain your records and to allow access to those records to whomever you choose. So it, it again, is kind of changing from the sort of institution-centric to a more learner-centric view. Let's um, let's talk about how this is benefiting teachers, and then then we'll come back to your push on computer science. So okay. you you've introduced a new learning platform for teachers called Tool. It's teaching online open learning. Um, tell us how that benefits teachers. So the Tool program is actually um, in what we call Georgia Learns. So it's a professional learning platform. It is interoperable with other platforms. For us in Georgia, that's really helpful to teachers because now they can take classes um, from the universities because the universities here use D2L. Um, We can actually ingest D2L courses into our platform. And then the tool platform. D2L is just a a learning management system widely used, particularly in higher ed, right? Yes. And, um, And the tool the tool itself is just a course for online learning. It's open to anyone. So even if you don't live in Georgia and you want to learn how to teach online, you can go onto our tool platform by just Googling Georgia Virtual Tool and um, and you can take the course. If you wanted it to be verified, that means that you would do some course assignments and that somebody would review those course assignments and um, either say, yes, you have learned the concepts or no, you haven't. If they say yes, then the course is verified, then you earn a badge. And that badge can then be stored in any way that you want. Um, We are working with um, different badging groups to ensure that whatever badging group you as the learner use, and in this case is the teacher, um, that it it can follow you that way. So it sounds similar to the way many um, MOOCs work these days on Udacity or Coursera. Or edX, yes. Right. It is. Um, And so we are actually looking at those as well, trying to figure out and make sure that we've opened up the door for teachers so that they can go to any of those. um, And we're just trying to create a single pane of glass so that you know that you can search what courses you want. You can... um, you can store information in there. Your uh, supervisors can have access to your information if you want them to. And there's a single sign-on for everybody to, to get on so you don't have to worry about logging in and out. Well, how this? so this sounds like um, badging or micro-credentialing for teachers. So how do, you, how do you see this benefiting teachers compared to traditional forms of PD? We have gotten rid of the old, what we used to call professional learning units. Um, those were, if you go sit in a room for eight hours in a day, you got one PLU. Those have gone the way of the dodo bird. And so now we're really trying to ensure that teachers have personalized professional learning. There's a lot of emphasis on the social networks that are important for teachers. So we do have a lot of emphasis on professional learning communities And our platform allows for community engagements um, around different courses. And then we also have just individualized courses where you could go on and learn more about something in particular, or you could go on to other courses 
um, that are being offered by other other entities outside of the Department of Education. In fact, that's where the vast majority of our courses come from. So that if if I'm a teacher and I have decided that I really want to learn more about comprehension strategies for reading instruction, I can go on and learn about that. I can also engage with other teachers, whether they're in my district or not, to talk about that particular thing. Um, This is super important, especially for our rural districts. In Georgia, we have about 70% of our districts um, are in rural areas. They serve about 30% of our students. So it's really important for teachers who are living in rural areas to have access to peer groups that may not live in proximity to them. Because, for example, if you're, t- if you're a world language teacher in rural Georgia, you may be the only German teacher for hundreds of miles. Right. So um, there's a need for our teachers to be able to have peers who they can reach out to across, across time and space. So that's what we're hoping that they can um, see and, and benefit from in the platform. That's exciting. It sounds a bit more sophisticated than um, most other states. Are there other states moving in this direction? Well, um, we have seen some peers that are doing a good job of it. Um, I don't think we have a lot of peers who've really been invested in learning about a learning architecture that allows for this level of interoperability and doesn't um, seem to be the case we are we are seeing um, many states open to uh, and beginning to use micro credentialing yeah so i think um we've had some good conversations with vermont and virginia um they both they were actually in meetings with Dr. Osborne last week and they were saying oh this sounds really exciting we would love to do it too you know, we have kind of a unique situation where I am. I don't think a lot of Department of Education, I don't think they hire a lot of researchers who study learning sciences. So, no. <laughs> and are, you know, reading peer-reviewed journals all the time. So um, I think we may have a little bit of a unique advantage in that. At the same time, um, some like I just talked to the Georgia um, Educational Technology Conference group, which is a huge conference that is just all Georgia educators. And I came home, I said, it's like, it's like, that's the choir. They get it. But when I talk to other groups, um, sometimes when I say things about, um, you know, building an open architecture and ensuring that teachers earn badges, I think this is still part of the learning curve for some of our school leaders. Right. So I think, no, I, I think, uh, I think Dr. Dooley is the secret sauce for Georgia. <laughs> so let's go back to uh, computer science. So why the big push on computer science for, uh, for Georgia students? So I um, came to computer science through my own research in literacy because I was looking at how literacy was changing. Um, digital literacies have really upended the um the media world, um, the the book publishing world. So we we see, you know, newspapers changing very, very um, dramatically over these, over the last 10 years. So literacy itself has changed. And as I was investigating digital literacies, I was really looking at um, what kids need to know. And that's how I arrived in my own research on computer science education. So before I left Georgia State University, I've been, um, very thankful to the National Science Foundation for investing in some of the research I was doing on early learning with computer science education. I really think that um, just like I think literacy is an equity issue, if kids are not literate, they are going to have difficulty in math. They're going to have difficulty in every other area 
and they're going to have difficulty graduating from high school. We have a lot of research that shows that literacy is very predictive of later in life outcomes. And I am of the mindset, and there are a lot of researchers who agree, that understanding computer science right now, that too is an equity issue. When kids are growing up and they go into the, into the grocery store with their parents, they're dealing with computers right away. We carry computers in our pockets. If we don't understand how computers work, then anyone who doesn't understand that is going to be in a disadvantage in our society because we are a digital society now. So um, I've been working with several different organizations, the Computer Science Teachers Association being one, um, Code.org being another, the um, National Math Science Initiative. Of course, the National Science Foundation has been absolutely wonderful to us to really understand what we need to do to broaden participation in computer science education. If we look at the outcomes of computer science education in the 1980s, we were actually doing better in 1984 with engagement of women and students of color in computer science than we are now. We've seen computer science education become more male and more white dominated. And this is happening at the same time that we are really moving into an era where Every field, every job that someone is going to have, with very few exceptions, they're going to be dealing with computers. So um, I believe, and, and we are of the mindset in the Georgia Department of Education, that we have to have computer science education as a K-12 discipline. And that means just like when you're, you know, when you were in kindergarten, you learned about math, and then in second grade and third grade and fourth grade and ninth grade and twelfth grade, you always had a math class. That's how we're thinking about computer science education. We believe that there should always be some, some evidence of computer science across a student's um, K-12 career so that as they matriculate through the system, they're understanding how computers work, how computational thinking works, and how that relates to everyday learning and everyday life. You're listening into a conversation with Dr. Dooley and Tom about the work in the state of Georgia to expand access to quality content and instruction as it relates to computer science. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like season two, episode seven on what artificial intelligence means for students. Don't worry about trying to write that down. We've included it in the show notes below and on our blog at gettingsmart.com. Now let's get back into the conversation and hear why computer science is more than just coding, but instead is also about a broader set of competencies. So I was one of the writers um, with a a nice strong group of fellow teachers and researchers and teacher educators um, with Code.org was leading the group and we wrote the K-12 CS frameworks. And that basically laid out the practices that we expect and the concepts that we expect anyone who's learning K- K-12 CS, computer science, um, across the, the grade bands. And what we came up with is there are different disciplines. So networking, data systems, software, hardware, and of course, the impacts of computing. Those are more of the sociological um, understandings that you'd need to know about ethics and law and um, important cultural behaviors that have been influenced and influence how we use computers. All of those are really important concepts that need to be developed. And then the practices are similar to the science practices. Like how do you learn how to seek information? How do you learn how to um, utilize algorithms in order to solve problems? 
those practices should be instantiated in every grade level. When we were writing the K-12 CS frameworks, we were really with the, we came at it with the mindset that K-12 CS should be integrated in K-8. And this is similar to, um, there's a man named Seymour Papert who wrote a book called Mindstorms back in the 1980s. And it was all about how when you're learning computing, you're learning to do something. And so you have to use computers to do something. And that does involve coding, but it also involves a lot more than just coding. It involves understanding how users work with the computer. So that's user interface and, and, um, and UX, um, just the, the user experience. So, um, there are a lot of different things that go into working with computers well beyond just coding. Right. So what would the ideal high school uh, sequence look like? It sounds like you'd ideally want dedicated courses and, and then like writing some application across the curriculum. Yeah. So um, we actually have that. If you just, if anybody wanted to look at it, it's just k12cs.org and it's all laid out. There's also a book that is free if you print it out as a PDF or you can buy it um, at a very low cost. And it's, it's just cost, the cost just covers the cost of shipping. Um, and it basically lays out what the disciplines would be. Um, it doesn't lay out exact courses. And I do think that that's important to note, because I think right now, some of the courses that we are currently offering in high school, even in our advanced placement courses, once we get this right, that those courses would probably be more like sixth grade level. So um, as we move toward kids who know more earlier about what computing is, we can actually understand even more about how computers work in our world. And that's super important because computers are working um, in different ways in our world now. So if you think about just data sciences, that in and of itself would be a discipline in, in 9-12. And that's an emerging discipline that we see in higher ed. Um, but we don't know what we don't know yet because it it's still evolving right now. So what's the department doing to advance uh, computer science education in Georgia? We are so excited um, because we have started a CS for Georgia, CS4GA. Um, basically, it's an initiative. And we're convening districts who want to do this. Um, and then we also have philanthropy sitting at the table because as the local districts evolve and as they innovate, they might need some um, small inputs of, of money, you know, special offerings if kids really find an affinity for computer science. That's a great way for, um, for our, our philanthropic partners to invest. What we're doing right now in, in Georgia through this initiative, we've been focused on professional learning. So we have increased the number of teachers who are certified to teach computer science We've increased it by 200%. That sounds really good in a year. However, we've moved from 32 to a little over 100. And we're going to need, in order for this to be a discipline, we're going to need 15,000 teachers. Um, That's how many we have for something like Spanish. So we are of the mindset that we are going to have to utilize online learning um, in at least a hybrid way. Um, And we're going to have to leverage all of the different curricular tools that the National Science Foundation and others have invested in because they're very high quality tools. And irregardless of whether or not we have a certified teacher, we want to make sure that we have a knowledgeable teacher 
someone who knows about those resources and who can use them in a knowledgeable way to help our kids learn. That is uh, uh, like the Open Architecture, um, an amazing initiative. I don't think there's any other state working as aggressively on computer science. Are, are any? Do you have any colleagues that are uh, at other states that are working on this? We do. So that is where I've been very, very thankful to um, Code.org and the Computer Science Teachers Association. Um, Arkansas has been working on computer science for a while. West Virginia introduced standards a while ago, and they're very involved in the in the groups as we push forward. Um, Idaho is, has been working on computer science. We now have 26 states with computer science standards, which is amazing because if you had looked two years ago, you would not have seen even half of that. Um, we also have several different ways to convene. Um, we have ECEP, and I'm going to forget what that's, um, Excellence in Computing Education Partnerships. Um, and that, too, is sponsored by the National Science Foundation. Um, we recently had an INCLUDES grant from the National Science Foundation to really support convening across states. Rhode Island has been um, exceptionally as an exceptionally good partner. So I think that we in Georgia are just articulating what many other states are going through, which is, oh my gosh, we really, really need this. This is not only um, an equity issue for our students, it's an economic issue for our state. Right. And having an open learning architecture for the, the computer science resources that we have in K-12 would be exceptionally, um, it, it would create an exceptional advantage for all of us because it would allow for more teachers to teach in, the, in an area that is so nascent, we just don't have enough teachers. Some of those other states uh, also benefit from uh, gubernatorial leadership. And this is a big enough shift that requires business and university support that it really does help if the chief and governor are helping to lead the charge. Yes. Um, our governor, uh, when I first came on, he had a computer science education task force that had already started to convene. So when I first came on board, I continued those convenings and came up with our plan for what we would do moving forward. And now we're enacting that plan. And our um, state school superintendent, Richard Woods, has been um, exceptionally supportive of the work that we're doing and, you know, offers a, a pat on the back and a encouraging text all the time. So, um, and he's spoken out many in many of our Georgia meetings about the importance of computer science. We also have a lot of really great um, industry partners in our state who've offered to help both through in-kind support, as well as through, um, you know, just general, you know, they show up at the meetings every time and they, they um, you know, they're offering to support teachers. So we at the Georgia Department of Education are not taking money um, from the industry partners, but the industry partners are supporting our teachers when the teachers need um, scholarships to go to professional learning or things like that. They've really been stepping up. Caitlin McMundooley, it's uh, been great to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. We really appreciate your leadership in online learning and in computer science and in next generation professional learning. It's um, It's been really exciting to learn about your work. Well, thank you. It's been a great opportunity for me to explain it. And hopefully people are, have a, have a um, positive view of Georgia. We are, we're trying to shake it up a little bit and get our students ready for uh, our next century. 
A big thanks to Dr. Dooley for speaking with us today. If you want to learn more about what Georgia's doing and how they're moving the numbers on everything from graduation rates to accountability outcomes, check out gadoe.org. And soon they'll be launching a Computer Science for Georgia website that will include assets, resources, and organizational aspects and information about how to develop a collective impact approach to engagement in computer science. Thanks for tuning in today. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. We love your feedback. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog, gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline signing off.